So that's kind of why I became such a huge advocate uh, for DEI in sport, because I feel that sport saves lives. And I can go down the rabbit hole of like why it saves lives for each minority community. But the reality is that it saves lives. It gives people purpose, which helps the manage mental health um, diagnoses. Uh, it gives people community, which help, again, mental health diagnoses and uh, accountability. It provides goal setting. Um, it gave me a pathway, not just to go to college, but also to have a career, which is amazing, you know, just because I picked up a barbell. This is Strength in the Details, a podcast that goes beyond the classic debate on reps, sets, and exercise programming, and focuses on aligning what matters most in your training, nutrition, mindset, and lifestyle. I'm your host, Dr. Anaja Newsom, founder of Optimize Strength. I'm a PhD with a focus in the exercise and health sciences, a coach, and weightlifting athlete. With more than a decade of professional experience in sport and fitness, I truly believe that the impact of mental skills, motivation, and self-efficacy are often overlooked and underappreciated in exercise behavior change, sport performance preparation, and everyday coaching practices. You deserve to feel strong in the gym and beyond. And on this podcast, we dive in to the mental aspects of exercise, training, and sport performance. So join me as I invite industry experts, elite athletes, and coaches, and researchers to a conversation about the gritty details. Susie Sanchez is the former USAW Director of Culture, Community, and Programs. She's a USAW national coach, instructor, and Cat 2 referee. She's also the club director and coach of the Retirement Home Barbell Club in Colorado Springs and a former member of Team USA. Community building is an important aspect and benefit to sport participation. The experiences of competing as an international athlete help you gain a unique perspective, and it can inform and shape your life decisions. For Susie, this sparked her passion for advocating for athletes at all levels, especially collegiate athletes. While we traditionally think of the physical gains that we achieve through strength sports, this episode digs into the social and emotional role that strength sports play in youth development and across the lifespan. So check it out. Hi, Susie. How are you? I'm doing so great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a while that we've been talking about this, so I'm glad to finally have you on the episode uh, to chat a bit. Yeah, for sure. I know I like got so distracted like doing all of the things and then was like, oh no, I forgot about Anaja. So I'm glad to be able to join you and to chat. Yeah, are you gearing up for nationals? Yes, I am so pumped for nationals. This will be, I have not missed a national championship since I started in the sport in 2009. Well, I started in the sport in 2008, but my first nationals was 2009. So very excited that I get to hit all of the national championships at once and just keep, keep adding to my number. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to talk about nationals week a little bit later, because I definitely want to get your perspective on um, you know, how National Championship Week works and, and maybe some um, tips for athletes that are experiencing Nationals Week and what they should expect. But first, you know, welcome to the podcast. Tell us about you. Who is Susie Sanchez? Oh, hi. Uh, so um, I'm Susie. I have been in the sport since 2008. Before that, I competed in the sport of powerlifting um, in Houston, Texas. So in Texas, 
powerlifting is a high school sport, much like how weightlifting is a high school sport in Florida. Um, yeah, I kind of, you know, I just fell in love with, with strength sports. I loved the community. I loved the ability to kind of like be in charge of my own body. Uh, and I also, even as like a young child loved breaking down like gender norms. So I loved being the, like one of two girls that participated in powerlifting. And then, you know, when I got into the sport of weightlifting, there were like 6,000 members. Um, so I was also one of like very few like people of color in the sport. So, um, really fell in love with, uh, how welcoming everybody was and, uh, learned how to snatch actually at like one of my first competitions. Cause they, I remember like being in the back room, I was with Mike Colelli and his wife who were based out of Houston and, uh, they were like, no, you're not doing that properly. And so like, they were teaching me how to snatch, like right before I was going out for my opening attempt, which was really funny. Um, but yeah, so, um, ended up going to LSU Shreve. Port uh, to compete as a collegiate level athlete and trained there under Kyle Pierce back in its heyday when, you know, there were a ton of, you know, world team members, junior world team members that were training there full time, uh, which was really cool. And then eventually making my way to the Olympic Training Center in 2013, uh, where I trained uh, right up until 2015. I ended up getting a torn rotator cuff, bicep tendon and labrum, and then had like, you know, my Olympic dreams dashed, depending on who you, you ask, they'll probably say that I shouldn't have had those dreams to begin with, but you know what? I had them and they were a great time. And it, it provided me with the opportunity to meet amazing people, uh, like yourself, like, you know, Danny, like all of the, um, all of the weightlifting friends and family that I've made throughout the years, um, and it also really fostered a sense of like the importance of like volunteerism and advocacy in me. Um, so even after I left the training center, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to go work for the city of Houston and I worked uh, on the events team to run the 2015 IWF World Championships um, because all the whole time while I was training, I was still working and events and sporting events specifically were my passion. So I... <laughs> Uh, worked that event and um, continued to volunteer with weightlifting as an official. I opened a club. Uh, I became a uh, the president of the South Texas LWC, which was what we had before WSOs were a thing. And, you know, just really dedicated all of my time to try to help find more people like me to get involved in the sport. So, and then eventually making my way to work at USA weightlifting under the then CEO, Phil Andrews, um, in a grassroots and like outreach capacity. Awesome. You have so much experience. And one of the things that I, I find as a common thread that you just mentioned is this aspect of community. And, you know, most people get into the sport through, you know, either powerlifting like yourself, or I got into the sport of CrossFit and, and, you know, different things draw you to the sport. But one of the things that is consistent is this idea of like the lifelong friendships that you make and the relationships and the the opportunities that you get through the sport of weightlifting, regardless of the level of athlete um, you, you become. Um, right. you, know, you definitely had some experiences at the international and world level. Could you talk about your experience as a collegiate athlete and then, you know, maybe how that impacted you as a person. Yeah, for sure. So, um, 
this was like the early to like 2010s. There weren't a ton of like collegiate programs like there are now. Uh, there was literally, you know, there was LSUS, ETSU, Lindenwood, and Northern Michigan University. Um, and the collegiate scene was like very small. And we definitely, it felt like at the time we were getting dealt like the short end of the stick, right? Like nobody really cared about collegiate athletes. Um, so for me, I was like, well, if no one's going to care about us, then I'm going to, then I'm going to care about us. Right. And, um, I tried to make sure that myself included, but any kind of athletes that joined our team felt like they were a part of something bigger than just a collegiate club, you know, at LSU Shreveport. Um, and so with that, we created this like environment of like high level sport. Uh, I think that this like idea that in order to be successful, you have to go to a gym with like, you know, five to 10, like world team members at the junior, senior and, you know, Olympic level in order to be successful is kind of silly. I think that that um, culture and environment can be fostered regardless of the level of, I guess, talent or experience that an athlete has, because it's a mindset, right? Um, so with that, I was a, with creating that kind of like culture that, you know, is fostered under Kyle, um, I was able to qualify for my first international team, which was the university uh, world championships or the summer university ad in 2011 in Shenzhen, China, which was really cool. Um, you know, I had growing up, like taken trips across the border to Mexico because, you know, that's where I had family. Um, and so like I was, I had been exposed to international travel, but I had not been exposed to international travel to the extent of like traveling 27 hours across the globe to China. Right. And that just, that was it for me. I was like, I want to do this. Like, I don't know how I'm going to make this happen, but I want to be in a situation where like I am traveling across the world where I'm experiencing different cultures and taking those experiences and like bringing them back to like my home gym to help enrich again, my community. Right. Um, so competed there in 2011 um, made university worlds again in 2012 and meddled. And that was in a lot Israel. And that's where I met Zygmunt Smallsertz, who was the train, the coach at the Olympic training center in Colorado Springs. And he was like, you need to apply to come in, you know, train at the training center with me. And like, of course, you know, I, I had just graduated college. Um, so I was in that kind of like one year period after you graduate that you can still like compete at the collegiate level. Uh, and I was like, ah, I just started this full-time job, but I really love weightlifting. And I just thought about like that moment of like getting off the plane in China and just being like, I'm going to make this happen. So I quit my job. I got in my car and drove to Colorado Springs and, you know, started training with, with Zygmunt. Um, I made two more international teams there, uh, the summer university ad in 2013 in Kazan, Russia. And then the University World in 2014 in Thailand. So um, I think that from like a performance perspective or being an athlete, those international experiences really provide you with, I don't know, just different perspectives on the world. Like you realize how much you're blessed with, maybe how much you're missing. Um, and it really kind of helps you reprioritize like what's important in your life, you know? Uh, so for me, having those experience really informed like my life decisions on like what I like, what kind of legacy, like I wanted to leave on the world. And for me, that was 
helping more athletes like me who may not have been like Olympic level talent, but who still had a passion and a love and talent for the sport of weightlifting to be able to have those opportunities. Um, so I really kind of went all in on the collegiate side and was like, again, if nobody's going to pay any attention to them, I'm going to pay attention to them. Uh, and that's how I met, you know, people like yourself, uh, David Griffin, shout out out in Texas, uh, you know, Carl out in Carl with Menlo out in uh, California and so many people in, in the sport who, who want to provide those opportunities for collegiate athletes to be able to expand their, uh, their experience and their perspective. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And and you're, you're right to your point. I think that international travel and, and also, you know, you weightlifting is, is an individual sport that has some team components to it, much to your um, comments about just atmosphere and creating a, a sense of culture and community. I think competing as a, as a collegiate athlete, even though it wasn't weightlifting for me, it was softball. I think that having those experiences of, you know, getting out of your comfort zone and leaving your hometown and, you know, for you leaving your home country really gives you a perspective of just how much impact you can have on the world. And it, you know, kind of takes you out of your zip code. And I think that's really, really important. What were, where was your favorite place to compete? Thailand. I love Thailand. Yeah. So 2014, we were in Chiang Mai, which is like in the mountains. And I absolutely fell in love. I had the opportunity to go back to Thailand in 2019 um, to go watch the world championships when it was hosted there. Um, but I fell in love with the culture. I fell in love with the people. Um, the food is amazing. And like, there was a hot minute where I was like, I could just move to Thailand. Like there's such a, like a, a very large, like expat community there uh, that I was like, I could just quit my job and like, be done with weightlifting and then move to Thailand. So yeah, I loved it there. Yeah. Awesome. So, you know, you got the opportunity to, to compete at a young level, at a young age, but at a high level, why is athletic participation in general at any level and whether it be a barbell sport or strength sport or something else, why is that so important for young people and their development to, you know, to the point where it, it, it passed, it gave you passion to, you know, help increase those opportunities. Yeah. So I think that goes back to kind of the, the topic of this conversation, which is community, right? Like I've known so many people in my life who like, they go to high school, they go to college, they get the job. And then it's like, now what, like, what do I do with my free time? And that's how people kind of go down this rabbit hole of their work kind of becomes their life. Um, so I think it's really important for people, especially at a young age, to start finding those things that excite them, whether it is the sport of weightlifting or whether it's cycling or whether it's climbing or painting or, you know, going and collecting seashells on the beach. Like you can find um, any group of people anywhere to do almost anything. And um, I think those sorts of things are really enriching to your life as a whole. Um, all of the people, you know, I have this like goal to like live to be 115. Like that's my goal. Like I want to be 115 years old. I don't know why it's a very arbitrary number, but I'm convinced that I'm going to live to be 115. Um, and all of the people that I've met who are over the age of 90, um, when I ask them, like, what's their secret to a long life? Like they talk about like how, um, fitness is a huge thing. Like they go for their, their daily walks or they cycle or they, um, 
you know, they just kind of get out into the world. But the other part of that is relationships. But yeah, so they talk about how important it is to kind of just like have a group of people to like share an experience life with. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced like depression or like loneliness as a whole, but it can be very all consuming where just having one other person or like two other people to kind of like just come and read with you or again, share in in something that you're passionate with can really just help bring you out of that like space. Um, Obviously it's different for everyone, but um, I guess to your point of why it's important for kids, especially uh, life is very long. (laughs) And even though it kind of goes by really fast, it's very long and cultivating and fostering those relationships and those Uh, Things that excite you at a younger age is just going to provide you with a more enriching life and experience down the line. Yeah, I agree. That's a great answer. You know, I I find that the to the to the point of community and connection. You know, I've I've had the the privilege of meeting so many people, and at the surface level, you feel like we have nothing in common. There's nothing that we you know, we have, we don't have the same life experiences. We don't, we're not from the same place. You know, maybe we don't share some of the same identities, but through sport and through athletic participation, I always feel like there's an anchor. And when you find that anchor, then you find that we truly aren't all that different, right? Right. We have some differences, but you, you tend to find those similarities in sport that can help you find connection with people that I think that is so important, especially, you know, for children. And you think about, you know, the, to your point, the isolation and the loneliness that I think that we're finding more and more in society in general, you know, through screens and through lack of physical education and just kind of being, you know, outside and being amongst people, you know, I think that it's, really important to find a safe and effective environment to allow kids to explore and participate and find community and connection. Absolutely. And I love what you like, I feel like you hit the nail on the head. Like you find those like little seeds that like a friendship, right? So like, I know that when I go to, um, or I guess it's even, I'll use an example. Like when I was working at USA weightlifting, um, somebody would call and they'd be really upset about something. And I'd have to remind myself that whoever it is on the other other side of the phone, we both love weightlifting. We have that in common. So if I can just bring us back to the fact that we both love weightlifting, we can find a solution together. And I think that's why like, I've been able to cultivate so many great relationships in the sport, even with people that I have differing like values with or differing opinions about, um, because I know that like at the end of the day, we still love weightlifting. Absolutely. In what ways has your athletic athletic career shaped your role and path as an employee for USA weightlifting? Yeah. Um, oh man, that's such a like long question. (laughs) So like I grew up during a period, like grew up, right. I was like a teenager, like, or like young adult by the time I got into weightlifting, but like I grew up in weightlifting during a point where, there wasn't a lot of like direction from the national governing body. Like there was a lot of uh, confusing information, like selection processes were extremely hard to read, like understanding how to qualify for events was really complicated. Um, and I got really good at researching because I, I got like really into researching in general, just because I had to like search for information all the time on the USAW site, which 
if you've ever had to use it, you know what I'm talking about. Um, right. Yeah. And like now that like, and now I know like, it's not really their fault. Like it's like a whole thing, but, um, because of that, like I wanted to be a part of making things easier for people. Uh, I really hated this like rhetoric and narrative around like USA weightlifting doesn't care or USA weightlifting is confusing or doesn't provide information or, you know, whatever negative like connotation people wanted to put around it. And I knew that that couldn't be the case. I don't think that people operate in general from like malice, like from a place of like malice, right? Like I think that generally people are trying to have like good intention and like make a positive impact, but it's just not necessarily hitting or being communicated in the right way. Um, so that kind of started my like journey to be like wanting to even work at you. USA weightlifting. I just wanted to help make things easier for people because I knew how hard it was for me. Um, like I also knew how hard it was like watching Kendrick trying to qualify for the Olympics when I was training at LSUS and like having such a hard time understanding like what events were qualifiers and like the process now is much more streamlined. Like, you know, you go to the, we know exactly when the last qualifying event is going to be. Uh, we know what events we have to go like go to compete at for like Olympic qualification, like all the athletes who just went to Cuba. Um, but before it wasn't like that. And so like, I wanted to, to be a part of like, I guess the change to like make things more accessible and easier to understand. Um, so originally I started going down the path of like events. So like I mentioned that I worked in events previously and I was like, Oh, I could, I could do events for USA weightlifting. And I actually applied for the events manager position in 2013. Um, I had like two years of event experience at that time. And like I had helped Kyle run two national championships and I was working for the city of Shreveport Bossier as their events manager. And I was like, oh, they'll for sure hire me. Like I, I know weightlifting, I've run national events. I currently work in events, like why wouldn't they? Um, they didn't hire me <laughs> and they ended up hiring Phil Andrews, which ended up uh, being a good decision for like weightlifting as a whole down the road, right? But um, that not getting that job is actually why I ended up like deciding to go down the path of becoming an athlete, like at the training center, because I was like, if I can't get this job right now, I can at least figure out a way to like leverage my talent to make me more marketable, like later on down like the line. Um, and so then after working event in events for many years and, and Aja, I know you've like set up and broken down events before. So you know how like physically detrimental it is to life. I was like, you know what? I don't want to be 45 years old setting up and breaking down events. Um, so I kind I started kind of shifting my focus and, um, like I had mentioned earlier, like I really got into volunteerism and I was doing a lot of things like with my LWC and um, like with the community. And so I knew that at the very, like at the base of like why I wanted to work at weightlifting was because I wanted more people to love weightlifting. Like I loved weightlifting. I wanted to find more people like Kyle Pierce. I wanted to find more people like Conroy, you know, if, if you know Conroy. Um, and I wanted to again, make things easier for people. So whenever the position came open at USA Weightlifting for the director of grassroots outreach, I applied and I was like, you know, I feel like the work that I've done um, locally in Texas and then just the connections I've made like across the country would uh, kind of feed 
into like, or help elevate my resume because of my general passion for the sport. So um, luckily I did get that role and I started, I started working at USA weightlifting, um, operating from a place of, I just want to make things better, right? Like I want, I don't want people to continue talking about like the big, bad USA weightlifting. Um, and I made it like probably too personal to the point that I was like, I want people to like be excited when they talk about being a member of USA weightlifting or be excited when governance positions become available for them to volunteer and like serve on because they want to be a part of the change and they want to be a part of like the positive impact that we're making on, you know, elite athletes all the way down to someone who has never picked up a barbell in their life. So, yeah. Well, we will save my next comment for another um, show where we talk about how people have a lot to say, but then actually don't want to step up into leadership roles to make a difference. I will just yeah. on that and we'll put it in the parking lot. We'll circle back. We'll circle back. We'll circle back <laughs> to that one. Um, and, and we are aware that USAW does a lot for elite level athletes. We do know that, you know, they, they have built resources and help support folks who have Olympic level dreams and aspirations but I know that your role at USAW and and what you're what you were passionate about for USA weightlifting and very much still you know still passionate about is that grassroots effort and cultivating this level of talent and community at at all levels regardless of you know your your experience level or your talent level or you know where your dreams may take you what are, what are some of those initiatives that you want folks to know are there for all athletes? That USA Weightlifting currently offers? Yeah. Yeah. So we had a number of different um, like outreach programs that existed when I was there. So like we had the community development training site program, which started as like originally a for-profit plan to try to create like camps so that we could recruit more talent into the sport of weightlifting. Um, Unfortunately, we just didn't have like the infrastructure in place to make that happen. So we, I kind of like changed the purpose and that's how it became the community development training site program, which currently is on the back burner. It kind of got like sunset after COVID happened. Um, but it was one of my favorite initiatives because the purpose of it wasn't a focus on elite athlete development. The purpose of it was to highlight clubs who were working in their local communities to try to grow the sport of weightlifting to people outside of the sport of weightlifting. So like uh, one of the requirements was that you had to submit two outreach programs and those outreach programs could not be like, oh, we host a free clinic cool. That's great. You host a free clinic for other people who already love weightlifting. How are you hosting a free clinic to get people who know nothing about weightlifting into weightlifting? Right. So, um, and through that initiative, I learned about so many different programs that were happening across the country, like, um, you know, four-star weightlifting in Michigan, for example, like they were running a program to like locally, um, collect old weightlifting shoes. They would clean all of them and then they would like send them out to different clubs so that they could provide weightlifting shoes to kids who wanted, or kids or adults who wanted to try the sport of weightlifting. Um, so that was probably one of my favorite initiatives. Um, currently most of what USA weightlifting offers are around like scholarship programs. So, um, we had a huge deficit, you know, like we talk about how weightlifting is very, like there's gender parity, like 
from the membership, like as a whole, it's like close to 50, 50 men and women. But when you actually look at the numbers and you break it down by like segments, so like coaches, technical officials, um, and athletes, like that, those numbers change like completely. So like we had a huge deficit on the coach side for, um, people of color, uh, for women and for people in the LGBTQIA plus community. Uh, so in part of my work on the diversity, equity, and inclusion side of my job, uh, we, I worked with the sports performance department, or not sport, coach development department uh, under JP and Anna uh, to figure out how we could make our courses more accessible to increase representation from those groups. Um, and that's kind of in the same vein as the uh, women's technical or referee like hardship fund. So to increase the number of like female referees that we have, um, if you've ever been to a weightlifting event, you'll notice that it's very like white male, like dominated. Um, so those scholarship programs have now kind of migrated to the WSO level and USA weightlifting from my understanding, and I could be wrong, is now doing a one-to-one -one match. So they are providing like if the Florida WSO provided four scholarships, like two for women, two for people of color monthly, USA Weightlifting would match that um, to double those resources. Um, so I think I'm like giving all of this information to basically say a lot of what I did was kind of help navigate decision-making within departments to ensure that people were being represented and people had opportunity and access. Um, on the other side on like the outreach side we had like all of the things we were doing at the collegiate level so uh we had the or we still have the university commission that's focused around collegiate outreach to help grow our college programs like when i started i mentioned there were only like four or five programs that existed and now there are 50 plus university programs at the varsity and club level uh, which is great that means that there are more people in that age group that are getting started in the sport of weightlifting that are going to become long-term members. Um, and not only are they going to become long-term members, but they're also more likely to run for those leadership positions, uh, which you don't necessarily see at the elite level. Like, I think that's why I loved the grassroots side so much because I went from competing at an elite level, being around Olympians, being around um, like world level athletes who all they wanted to do is lift, but they didn't care. They didn't care about weightlifting. They were just like, well, I'm going to lift because I'm good at it. And then when I'm done, I'm done. And it was just so disappointing because I'm like, but like, how are we going to find more people like you? Like, how, how are we going to get people excited about weightlifting? Um, and so that's why I think for me, like I loved all of the collegiate outreach work that we did uh, because they were a super engaged group. Uh, through that group, we started like the NUQ or National University Qualifiers um, to encourage more collegiate level competitions because in order to have collegiate growth, you need to have those collegiate level competitions and kind of um, leverage those university rivalries because again, that gets people excited. Uh, so that was probably one of my other favorite like kind of outreach programs that we did or that I did while I was there. I'll just, I'll leave it at that. We had university side, uh, the community development program, which I do hope that they bring back. And then all of the scholarship offerings that coach development uh, works on. I really like enjoyed working with you on the collegiate task force and really like, you know, I think that was like three years of really just 
getting to the nitty gritty about how to get people that have, you know, are, are talented, are, you know, at least four years at a university or college, and how can we then create opportunities? Because there, there is this gap, you know, we see a large number of, we're seeing an increasingly large number of athletes at the youth and junior level. And then once they, you know, pass that junior level, there's like this gap of, you know, where do I go? Where's the space for me? You know, how do I stay involved in the sport? And I really just loved watching, you know, the collegiate um, atmosphere and the community there grow. And of course, I had the opportunity to work with some really great people. Um, shout out to David Griffin. <laughs> Still love David, man. He's the best. He's the best. Um, so you talked a little bit about your work with DEI and you've been an advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion and weightlifting and, and in sport more broadly. Why is that so important to you? Oof, man, many different reasons. Um, and again, it goes back to community, right? Like I grew up in a situation where your existence was merely to survive, right? Like you go to school, you go to college, you get a job and, and that's it. You say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. You keep your head down and, and that's it. And there's like, there's no space for you. But if you've met me, I'm a very charismatic person and I make space for myself. Um, and honestly, like speaking very candidly, I didn't know that I was like one of like a handful of like women of color in the sport of weightlifting until like I was in it where like all of a sudden I looked around and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like what is going on? You know, like I, I didn't see a black referee until like 2015 you know? Um, and that was crazy to me. Like, how could people, how could we have access to a sport that really like, if isn't like at the time, it wasn't like that expensive, right? Like you have a pair of weightlifting shoes, you can go to a gym, you have a barbell and some plates. Um, like I've known people who have lifted on metal plates, obviously it's not ideal, but it's weightlifting, right? Like you're, you're picking up heavy stuff. And, um, it just made me sad. Um, then kind of like, as I started developing as a professional and going down the DEI like pathway, recognizing that minority communities are negatively impacted because of like system systemic inequalities. Like for example, I was in New York this past weekend and we were in Harlem and there wasn't a single grocery store within like a 10 block radius. It was just bodegas, like not having access to fresh food or um, healthy options. Like those are things that affect minority communities, not having access to um, somebody to advocate for you to be able to get on a bike means that those minority communities are more likely to be obese. You know, when I was growing up in Houston, Houston was voted the most obese city in the country. And I looked around and I was like, absolutely, because it's 115 degrees outside. Nobody is going to go, you know, run at the park in 115 degrees. Kids are staying inside. They're eating the shitty food that they have available to them. And it made me sad. Like, it made me sad. And I think that's like where my love of fitness started, because I was like, well, if I can't go outside, then I'm going to lift on my dad's rickety old bench that he has, like in our dining room, because that's just where it happened to be and, um, and take what I can, right. And make space for myself. And I didn't think it needed to be that hard, you know? And so 
So that's kind of why I became such a huge advocate uh, for DEI in sport, because I feel that sport saves lives. And I can go down the rabbit hole of like why it saves lives for each minority community. But the reality is that it saves lives. It gives people purpose, which helps the manage mental health um, diagnoses. Uh, it gives people community, which help again, mental health diagnoses and uh, accountability. It provides goal setting. Um, it gave me a pathway, not just to go to college, but also to have a career, which is amazing. You know, just because I picked up a barbell and why shouldn't every person have access to that opportunity? Right. So that's kind of, that's kind of, that's kind of where my path, I got really excited there. Yeah. And and I felt all of the excitement and I share in some of that excitement. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because I went to my first national competition in 20, oh, 14, 15, 15, 2015. But I remember being in the, in the event center and looking around and similar to what you just mentioned, I was like, I'm I'm the only black woman in this space. And if you were to ask me, what are the other black women in the space? I could name two, Kara Head Slaughter, and at the time, Jenny Arthur, now Jenny Vardania. Yeah. I go, okay, so do I, and, and immediately I started to think, do I not belong here? Is, there, is this not the right place for me? Um, and so all of those things kind of, you know, to your point, kind of keep people of color from entering the sport if they can't identify, if they can't see themselves there. And, you know, you tend to create space for yourself and you speak up for those people, but not everyone has that personality. Right. Not everyone right. feels empowered to do that. And I think that it's important to have folks like you who will create space and put chairs at the table for those people that, you know, have passion and have talent and have ideas um, that can contribute. I remember when I wanted to start coaching and I, you know, and started, you know, getting athletes and started coaching, I would still question myself because, you know, I didn't make a world team. You know, I am a woman of color. I'm a black woman. And I didn't see any of those people being successful in as coaches in the sport. And so I'm like, okay, do, you know, I have the education, I have the passion, I have the skill, I have the talent, but I don't have these other things, these check marks that seem to be the entry point into this, into sport and into the space. And so I really, I've always really just appreciated your advocacy for not just yourself, but it always seems like your your advocacy is for bringing other folks to the table. You gotta lift each other up, man. Yeah, yeah, we have to. And I just like had this thought, and I feel like it's important to note because working in this space, especially like working in the sport of we in the sport of weightlifting, where like everybody feels like they're an ally, and like allyship is great, and like yes, you probably are an ally, and that's amazing. Um, and I always, especially working in my role at weightlifting, the question constantly got brought up to me as like, well, weightlifting is the most welcoming sport. Like, why would people not feel like they have a space here? Why would they feel like they don't belong here? And I like to use the example of curved gym um, because for some reason, like it resonates a lot more with people when we just talk about like the impact of gender and apply it to like other minority groups. But why is curved gym successful? It's a women's only gym, right? Like why don't women feel comfortable going to just a 24 hour fitness or a VASA or, you know, a planet fitness. Um, it's because they feel unsafe. That's the reality. 
in in the US, in the world, women feel unsafe. And so having a space where there are people who are like them, other women, makes them more comfortable and more likely to participate in a fitness activity. Now apply that to other groups. I am a Hispanic woman. Let's say that I, I'm my sister. I'm going to use my sister as an example. I love my sister, but we are the opposite in terms of personality. She will not go to a gym. Like, well, because gyms are easy to use as an example. She won't go to a gym because she doesn't feel comfortable there because there aren't other people like her because she is a larger woman because um, there are a ton of men around. Like, that's just the reality. People are going, you don't know what people's lived experiences are. And the reality is minority communities, whether they're black, brown, um, you know, cis women, uh, trans women, um, whoever, they have experienced traumas in their life as a result of societal structures that make them feel unsafe and unwelcome. And so for those of you listening who have ever had that question of, well, weightlifting is welcoming. It's welcoming to you and your experience. And that's great. But you have to understand that for a majority of these minority minority population individuals, that is not their experience. And it's important that like we recognize that and instead of just like dismissing it. And anyway, that's my rant on that because I feel like people get very dismissive and it upsets me. So <laughs> I appreciate your rant. And I hope that those that are listening can really understand that. Um, and this kind of goes to my next question. Lack of diversity and inequity and injustice in sport doesn't just impact those marginalized communities. It impacts the sport as a whole. And from your experiences, how has how have you seen lack of diversity and lack of equity impact you know sport more broadly and maybe what are your recommendations for how we can change it even you know shift it in a small way um, in our own communities yeah so i have had the um opportunity to serve on many different like committees and cohorts outside of the sport of weightlifting within the olympic movement like i served on the steering committee for the council on social and racial justice Justice, uh, which was a USOPC-led group to review and analyze how minority communities were impacted by decisions, right? Um, so that's just kind of giving some background on my experience on another other groups that I've worked on. But uh, I'll start with refereeing, right? Having um, referees who are from one specific group are going to look at things through one specific lens. Uh, weightlifting is very much a sport where we have had the opportunity to allow athletes with disabilities to participate. Um, so people who are single limbed, uh, people who are deaf or hard of hearing, um, people who are blind or low vision. And I use this as an example because as a referee, I'm a cat two referee, we, I always end up getting involved with these discussions with other referees that are like, okay, well, like, because they're in a wheelchair or because they're single limb, like, we still need to hold them to the same standard as somebody who is like able-bodied. And I'm like, yes, but also no, like, that's your perspective. The reality is when somebody has a disability, other accommodations need to be made. I'm not saying that we need to change the sport of weightlifting or how we like really officiate the rules, but if somebody is lifting from a wheelchair, yeah, we, we're going to need to raise the barbell so that they can more easily 
lift it from the floor or change the rule to allow them to lift it from their lap. And even just asking those questions as somebody who is different, right? Like I'm in that group and you have the majority group that's like, well, we just won't, we'll just keep the rules the same. But having somebody in that group with a differing perspective now provides a pathway for people who don't have a seat at the table to be represented in the decision-making process. So that's just one example of how diversity at all levels of sport is important and how it affects like policy and decision-making. I think that, you know, other ways, I recently got asked the question on like selection procedures for qualification for like the Olympics. Did I feel that USA weightlifting selection procedures adversely affected um, like black and brown populations? My answer was no. I feel like the the process is super objective. Um, But this individual like brought it up because someone had asked him if a person of color had asked him if like if they felt that way, because in their experience, USA weightlifting um, has historically not been has been kind of tone deaf about like, you know, disparities as it relates to race and ethnicity. Um, And that's where it kind of goes back to like, assume that people are trying to operate from a place of like kindness and not a place of like malice. Right. And then there's the other, the other kind of like string that goes along with all of this. When one group is being negatively impacted, that provides a pathway for other groups to be negatively impacted. So again, I'll use um, like BIPOC populations versus actually, no, I'll use LGBTQIA plus populations versus um, like male and female populations, right? So right now um, we see in, I'm not going to name sports. There is a sport who has um, a number of transgender athletes who are participating and people are upset about it. This isn't fair. This isn't equitable. Like you're ruining women's sports, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you shouldn't allow them to compete. Once you start discriminating against one group and preventing them from competing, that opens the door to start discriminating and preventing other groups from competing. In this case, women themselves. Um, in this specific sport, there's a very low women's population. In the case that there aren't enough women who are participating, the event director can just cut the women's category altogether. How is that fair, right? How is that equitable to um, prevent women from participating because you care about women's sports? So like, I'm using this as an example to say that we have to lift each other up because no one else is going to do it for us. And if one group is suffering, we are all suffering. Does that, yeah, Yeah. does that answer your question? I love that. I love that. Um, I really appreciate your your perspective on that. And I think it's an important topic that we have to keep talking about in sport. I think it's it's something that I haven't really touched on a lot on my on my podcast, um, but I think it's so important that we continue to have these discussions because it is impacting. It's impacting our mental health. It's impacting our physical health. It's impacting our ability to move up in sport and to elevate our sport performance. And so I, I really appreciate, you know, the the insights that you're having uh, or that you're providing. And we're not always going to get it right, right? We're not right. always going to make the absolute right decision, but we have to be forward thinking. And I love the way you put it, like, and people can't assume that we're operating from a, uh, from a, a, a viewpoint of malice, that, that, 
we have to make intentional, informed decisions to move forward and to continue to make decisions that um, create equitable sport for, for all people, all humans, all athletes. So Susie, when I release this episode, we'll be underway for USAW uh, Nationals Week, the, 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 jun uh, the youth, junior, and uh, senior or open Nationals Week. And you're experienced as a coach and a category two referee. What should athletes do to prepare themselves for Nationals Week and specifically maybe those that this might be their first time? Yeah. Um, well, when we're in Colorado, um, we're in Colorado Springs, so we're at altitude. Please make sure that everyone stays hydrated. I know it's going to be tough because a lot of people do water cuts, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it's just super dry here. So I think it's it's important to take that into account uh, from a safety perspective. Um, one, always remember to have fun. Like we're here to have fun and, you know, we're going into youth nationals. And I, I think one of the scariest things to me, um, are the youths because I, I love them so much. They're so great. I love watching on the little kids, but it's scary because I feel like they come in with like so much pressure. Like I've seen like nine-year-olds crying because they missed their opening attempt. And I'm like, guys, like, we're just, we're here to have a good time. Like, it's okay. I've seen parents pushing their kids to try to cut weight. I've seen coaches pushing parents to try to push their kids to try to cut weight. Like, um, I think something that is super important to know going into nationals week is that it's still just weightlifting and we are here to have a good time and we're not here to hurt ourselves. We're not here to foster a sense of, shame or stress as it relates to performance. We are here to celebrate each other's successes and to um, support each other when we don't have those successes. So I think that's like my first piece of advice. Just remember it's weightlifting and to be supportive of one another. Um, two, referees are always looking out for your elbows, man. So even if you point at your elbows and even if you're trying to sell it, just stand still, just, just stop moving. Uh, so that's really important. Um, if you guys are traveling in, make sure, you know, you pack all of your stuff in your travel on, uh, or track carry on. Don't, you know, check your bag. Cause there's nothing worse than showing up to a meet and forgetting everything. I'm trying to think I should have written all this stuff down. Um, oh, if you see somebody that you look up to, don't be afraid to go tell them hi and to ask them for a photo because weightlifting is small and, uh, for the most part, all of those people are really excited to share your joy and their joy together. So don't be nervous um, or embarrassed to go and ask, you know, somebody for a picture or to say hello. So I don't know. And, That's all I got. I'll come and ask you for a photo mm -hmm. and say hello. Thank you. <laughs> As a coach, how do you approach preparing your athletes for this level of competition? Is it different than local level or what do you say to that? I... Learn from the best. Kyle Pierce, shout out, best coach of all time. Um, it's just a heavy training day, you know, like the way that we trained um, and the way that I train my athletes now is we have our heavy Saturday workouts and that's the competition. We're approaching it like we're in a competition every Saturday so that when we get to the competition, it's just a heavy Saturday workout. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, lastly, you mentioned the elbows, anything else as a technical official, what do you wish athletes and coaches knew 
about how what you're looking for out there on the platform, especially those that, again, maybe this is their first time? Oh, man, two of my biggest things. So one, the elbows, like always the elbows. People love looking at elbows, but specifically in the back room on the Marshall table, don't take your card. You don't need to take your card anywhere. Just put your change in. Um, and we identify lifters by their lot number, not by their name. I don't know who John Smith is. I know who lifter number two is. So just tell me who number, just say number two and we'll put it in. Um, because I swear to God, if somebody comes up to me one more time and tells me their athlete's name, I'm going to, I'm going to flip that table. <laughs> Noted. I'll, Especially like, you know, you work like 28 sessions in a row, which means you're doing like nine or so sessions a day flipping it. I don't care. I'm flipping it. Uh, I'll definitely put that in the show notes for folks. Um, yes. so before I let you go, I'm going to go back to a, a throwback game that I did when I originally re uh, released the podcast and, um, we'll, we'll do a round of this or that and let, let's get to know Susie Sanchez a little bit better. So you ready? No, but let's do it anyway. I love that attitude. I'm not ready. Yeah. Great. All yeah. right, here we go. Coaching or competing? Ooh, coaching. Okay. Snatch or clean and jerk? Snatch. All day. All day. All day. Not even a question. I hate clean and jerks. These little legs, man, no. Maxing out in training or maxing out in competition? Oh. Maxing out in competition? Yeah. That's the goal, right? Okay. Front squat or back squat? Back squat. Front squat is terrible. Front squat is the worst. I hate it. It's my least favorite. If I ever see it on my program, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to lift today. I'm just going to skip. I'm just going to skip it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Here's this going to be my favorite. Running for cardio or CrossFit wides? Running for cardio. I hate CrossFit. It's too much. <laughs> okay. I thought yeah. you were going to go with the wad, but you know, you're surprised. Well, I just trained for that half marathon. So I'm like kind of a runner now. But Megan would appreciate that. I know. And she did. <laughs> All right. Vacay in the mountains or toes in the sand at the beach? Can I have both? <laughs> no. Um, okay. Uh, vacation in the mountains. Okay. All right. Here's a good one. Local wine or local beer? Local wine. Okay. Yeah. Dancing all night or reading a good book in bed? Dancing all night. Because okay. I'll just fall asleep if I get in bed. <laughs> Fair. Me too. Yeah. Uh, last one. Podcast or a music playlist? Podcast. Okay. All right. This podcast. This podcast. Love this it. This podcast. Yeah. Love it. Well, before I let you go, Strength in the Details is all about going beyond the reps and getting to the gritty details. My goal is to provide resources and content for people to think about that they don't typically think about. You know, exercise programming is not the end-all be-all, but there are other things that we can do to improve our sport performance. So before I let you go, what is your strength in the detail that you'd like to share with listeners? Ooh, hypertrophy okay. <laughs> volume training volume training is key to performance I feel like in weightlifting we a lot of coaches talk about like volume as like we're gonna do like three complexes over and over when I talk about volume I'm talking about the basics um so just stick with the basics stick with the basics we love that yeah. the basics mm -hmm. are I feel like very underrated 
They are underrated. And I actually, I was going to make a weightlifting unpopular opinion about this, but I haven't, I don't know if I'm ready for like the hate messages. So they're going to come and I will post them. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I can't wait to release this episode. Thanks so much, Naja. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Strength in the Details. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. Follow us on Instagram at Strength in the Details for more information on future episodes and guests. Also, drop us a note. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear. You can support the podcast by liking and sharing content on social media or subscribing to the YouTube channel for free. You could visit the link in the bio, Strength in the Details, to donate to production costs or visit coachingkilos.com forward slash shop for new merch and represent Strength in the Details in the gym or on the go. Thanks so much for listening and we'll chat again soon. Until next time, may your squats be strong and your lifts be big. Here's to going beyond the reps and getting to the strength in the details.